Amen. Good morning. So as Nicholas said, we are launching a new series this weekend uh, called Tough Questions uh, with a talk on atheism. Um, I'm starting with this talk because um, in in addressing how to interact with atheists, um, I will actually touch on several of the other questions uh, which I'll address throughout this series. So uh, the first of which is the problem of suffering and evil. Um, the issue of suffering is probably the most common objection to the Christian faith. Um, we are constantly confronted with pain and with suffering. Uh, we see it on a global scale. Um, there are natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes. Um, there's suffering due to mankind like drugs and alcoholism and human trafficking and genocide and wars. Um, we see suffering too on a personal level like anxiety and depression, sickness, poverty, the untimely loss of a loved one. Suffering can come in all kinds of forms and um, I would venture to say that none of us are immune to it. The Bible tells us that God is both all good and all powerful. C.S. Lewis once stated the opposing argument very well. He said, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. C.S. Lewis. So the answer to the problem of evil and suffering lies in both our greatest blessing and our worst curse, which is our capacity to make choices. Um, God has given us free will. He has given us the freedom to decide how we will act, and he has given us the ability to make moral choices. Um, This is one thing that sets us apart from the animals but is also uh, a source of so much pain in the world. People often make um, selfish, self-centered, and evil choices. And whenever that happens, people get hurt. Ultimately, sin is selfishness. I want to do what I want, not what God tells me to do. And unfortunately, sin always um, doesn't just hurt ourselves, it hurts others. Um, God could have eliminated all evil from the world um, by simply removing our ability to choose to do evil, right? He could have made us puppets like marionettes on strings. Um, By taking away our ability to choose it, evil would vanish, right? But God does not want us to be puppets. He wants us to love him and to love each other because we voluntarily choose to do so. Love is not genuine if there is no other option. God could keep tyrants from making war. He could keep drug dealers from dealing dealing drugs um, and human traffickers from trafficking by removing their ability to choose their own will instead of his. But to be fair, God would also have to do that with us as well. 
You and I um, aren't tyrants, not drug dealers or traffickers, but we, but we do harm and we hurt others with our own selfish decisions and our actions. The, uh, the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote this. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So in a world of free choices, uh, we rarely want to accomplish God's will. Doing our own will is much more common. Um, In heaven, God's will will be done perfectly, right? Um, That's why there will be no more sorrow, there will be no pain, uh, there will be no evil there. But this is earth. It's a fallen and imperfect place. Um, We must choose to do God's will um, every day. It's not automatic. This is why Jesus told us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible explains the root of evil. John 3.19, and I like the way the message paraphrase says this. This is the crisis we're in. God light streamed into the world, but men and women everywhere ran for the darkness. They went for the darkness because they were not really interested in pleasing God. We're far more interested in pleasing ourselves. And this is, of course, sin. And all suffering is a result of sin, um, either directly as a result of my own sin or the result of someone else's uh, sin or indirectly as a result of living in a fallen world um, where all of creation has been corrupted by the sin of human beings. So one of the comforting things that Christianity offers um, that no other religion does is this idea of a God, our God, being a God who suffers alongside with us. John Stott, a Christian author and leader, uh, once said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. So God is not a God who is immune to suffering. Um, He's not looking on like some impassive observer Um, far removed from the suffering world. Um, He participated in the suffering of the cross, and when we suffer, he suffers along with us. So in my 18 years of ministry, um, I unfortunately have had to perform um, funerals for children. Um, They can be pretty horrible. No one should have to bury their own child, right? Um, whenever I have done such a funeral, um, I, th- I try to think, like, what would it be like to lose my son, like my only son, we only have one child, and how difficult it would be to have to go through that. But here's an interesting thing. We often focus a lot on the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross and how much he must love us if he went through that, if he went through that much pain for us. But how much pain must God have endured 
watching his son be tortured and then die on a cross. So as horrible as it must have been to die on the cross, um, frankly, I would rather go through that myself than have to watch my son go through that. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A perfect God with the perfect capacity to love went through the worst torment that can be endured, allowing his son to die a horrible death for the salvation of mankind. When we suffer, God suffers with us. He has been there. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, he can relate, but why would he stand idly by And watch us suffer, right? These are the tough questions. Um, If he can do something about it, why wouldn't he? So maybe you're familiar with the analogy of an infant getting his vaccine shots. Um, Mom and dad hate to hear him scream and cry at getting the shot, but they know it's a momentary pain that will prevent worse pain down the road. It's not a perfect analogy, but sometimes God uses pain and suffering to teach us something, to learn to comfort others who are going through something similar, to shape our character, to test us and show us what we're made of, to lead us to repentance and salvation, to inspire others, to prepare us for eternal glory, to prevent us from becoming too proud, to promote the advancement of the gospel in the lives of others, and to allow us to become more like Christ himself. And the suffering we endure in this world will pale in comparison to the everlasting joy that we will have in heaven, right? Even though the pain in the moment can seem to never end. It feels like this is going to go on forever. The span of our lives is but a grain of sand on the shores of eternity. Right? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he said, That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So I'll talk more about the problem of evil, pain, and suffering uh, in week three of this series. But I want to shift uh, topics to talk about another argument <clears throat> that is posited by atheists, um, which is worldviews. So specifically, uh, the scientific worldview versus a biblical worldview. Okay? Are they at odds with one another? Do they conflict with one another? Um, I've always been 
kind of a math and science geek, so uh, I apologize if I nerd out here for a little bit. Um, scientists are discovering that the universe uh, is a finely tuned and delicately balanced harmony of fundamental constants. These constants are numerical values assigned to the various facets of the universe. So, like the rate of expansion of the universe, the value of the weak and strong forces, uh, the nuclear forces, um, and a bunch of other constants in nature. So, most scientists agree that there, these are infinitesimally small tolerances um, that had to be in place for the universe to even exist. Okay, for example, in the formation of the universe, the balance of matter to antimatter had to be accurate to one part in 10 billion for the universe to even come into being. Had it been larger or smaller by one part in 10 billion, the universe would not have come into existence. Okay. There would have been no universe capable of sustaining life if the expansion rate of the universe had been one billionth of a percent larger or smaller. Furthermore, the chance possibilities of life arising just spontaneously through mere chance um, has been calculated by Cambridge astronomer Fred Hoyle as being one in one times 10 to the 40th power. So that's like one in one with 40 zeros after it. Okay, that's the chance. So to give us a picture of the odds of the chance possibility of life just arising spontaneously, um, like the complexity of all life arising from essentially nothingness. Hoyle compares that to the probability of a tornado blowing through a junkyard and forming a Boeing 747. Okay. Had these values been infinitesimally smaller than, or greater than they are, no life would have been possible. Paul Davies, a theoretical physicist also at Cambridge, said this. He said, it is hard to resist the impression that the present structure of the universe, apparently so sensitive to minor alterations in numbers, has been rather carefully thought out. The seemingly miraculous concurrence of these numerical values must remain the most compelling evidence for cosmic design. So he also points out that the probability of the very delicate balance that needed to be achieved between the effects of the expansion and the contraction in the order of the universe um, for that universe to even exist is about the same as aiming for a target an inch wide on the other side of the observable universe 20,000 million light years away and hitting the target. Science and faith are absolutely not incompatible. Okay? Historically, some of our best scientists have been Christians. Right? Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Euler, Pascal, Faraday, Boyle, Newton, Pasteur, Kelvin, Maxwell, and Heisenberg. Even though he was a little uncertain. No, that was an inside joke. 
Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Sorry, it's my little nerd joke. Okay. Um, all of those were Christians. Okay. Sir Isaac Newton, you know him if you had to take physics or calculus uh, in school. Um, he actually believed in the inspiration of Scripture. Okay. In addition to the scientific books that he wrote, um, he also wrote theological books. Um, and he regarded his theological books as being more important. So to think of this more broadly, uh, science is great at asking the questions of how and when. But theology is better equipped to answer the question of why and who. So here's an illustration of what I mean. Suppose I were to show you a cake and I had all kinds of learned men and women analyze the cake for me. So first off, uh, let's say a nutritionist comes out and uh, he talks about the nutrients and the fat and the calories in the cake. There's a lot of fat and calories, not so many nutrients, right? Uh, then a chemist comes out and, uh, and analyzes the cake and says, well, that's fine, but we, we really need to get down to the basic chemicals in the cake, right? Then a physicist comes out and says, well, yes, but we need to go even deeper and look at the cake on an atomic and maybe even a subatomic level, okay? Then a mathematician comes out and says, ultimately, we need to understand the fundamental equations governing the cake, right? The equations that describe the motion of all the atomic and subatomic particles of the cake, okay? We need, a, we need a governing equation, okay? And they finish, and it's a wonderful analysis of the cake. We know a lot about the cake. And then I ask them, ladies and gentlemen, I've got one more question for you. Tell me, why was the cake made? And none of them can answer my question. Right? And then comes out my wife, Jackie, who made the cake. Um, she's not a scientist. She is not a mathematician. Uh, but she can answer the question. It is only when the person who made the cake is prepared to disclose why they made the cake that they'll ever understand the purpose and the meaning behind the cake. Okay? No amount of scientific analysis can answer that fundamental question. And then my wife says, I made the cake for our son because this week is his birthday. It's not, but it's just my analogy. Okay? There's the answer. No amount of scientific analysis will tell you why it was made unless the creator chooses to speak. The fantastic thing is that the creator has spoken. First through the word of God and then through Jesus Christ himself. Okay? I'll dive more next week uh, into the discussion of the intersection of a biblical and a scientific worldview. But I want to switch gears again and discuss another argument that is often uh, posed by atheists. And it is uh, called the incoherency of God. The incoherency of God. So the argument goes something like this. 
Think for a moment about the word God and what that refers to in the Christian faith. Okay, so consider these two sentences. God made the heavens and the earth, and Roger made pasta and salad. Okay? What is God in the first sentence supposed to stand for? Like, what is the referent to which that term is to be identified? Okay? Now, compare that with Roger, right? Someone can ask, like, who's Roger? And I can say, well, that's me. Okay? Now we go back to the word God. How do we know that anything that we could point to or we could literally see or observe or experience wouldn't be God? It'd be some kind of temporal something that you couldn't detect. Suppose we say that God is the transcendent being um, he is a being transcendent to the world upon whom all things depend and who depends on nothing himself, right? That's a good theological statement of who God is. He is a being transcendent from the world who everything depends on and he himself depends on nothing, okay? How do you know what it would be like to meet such a being, okay? Or the maker of the heavens and earth rather than the maker of pasta and salad. How would you know what that even refers to? Of course, here the argument is constructed around the idea that we cannot definitively identify God because he is an ethereal, transcendent being. He is an infinite being, right? Sometimes the incoherency of God argument emphasizes uh, the number of paradoxes of the Christian faith. Okay? So there's the paradox of the incarnation, right? Mentioned that on Christmas Eve. Um, Jesus was fully human and fully divine. There's the paradox of the Trinity, the three in one, right? God is three, God is one. There's the, the paradox of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here, um, but it is not yet fully here. There is the paradox of losing our life in order to save it, right? Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life must lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And there's the paradox of love, right? Love always fulfills itself by emptying itself. It's the new math of Christianity. We we add by subtracting, we multiply by dividing. So us comprehending the mind of God and his ways, right? The incoherency of God. Um, I liken, I've used this analogy before, I liken to two ants walking along a sidewalk and they come across an old computer that somebody's like put out for the trash. Um, there is no way they're going to figure out what that thing is and what it's used for, right? Two ants looking at a computer, trying to figure out uh, what it is and what its function is. It is no wonder that God can seem incoherent. Okay? I think of some of the scientific discoveries um, in the past century. Discoveries that have made our very conception of reality seem less coherent, right? 
So let's, let's just go right in the deep end. So there's general relativity, right? Uh, which on the surface seems simple, right? You remember E equals MC squared. It describes the relationship between energy and matter. A little bit of matter produces a large amount of energy uh, because it multiplies by the speed of light squared, right? But there are further uh, implications, less coherent implications, okay? The mass of a particular object can actually affect the warping of the space-time continuum, okay? So the most ex famous example of this is the black hole. You've heard of black holes. Um, when a star collapses in upon itself, um, it becomes so dense that uh, its gravity is now so strong that not even light can escape its grasp, right? That's the fundamental definition of a black hole. So apparently the laws of physics break down as one approaches the singularity that is the black hole center. Okay? For one, space and time no longer appear to be fixed. Right? So let me give you an example. If I were in a spaceship flying into a black hole and you were to watch me from Earth, um, it might take me a few hours to reach the center but from your perspective, um, it would appear as if I slowed down and almost stopped, like right where they call the event horizon of, of, the, of the black hole. Um, and I would just kind of be hanging there in the sky for like decades before I eventually disappeared. If I could somehow escape the grasp of that black hole's gravity, which I, I couldn't, right? Um, but let's say I could, and I came back to see you, um, you would have aged many, many years and only a few hours maybe would have passed for me. Right? Incoherent? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, let me give you another example. Okay? Um, it has been commonly accepted that we live in a world with four dimensions. Length, width, height, and time, right? However, in the, in the 80s, um, a new mathematical model for theoretical physics came into being called string theory. You may have heard of this. Um, it showed how all the particles, all the energy of the universe could be constructed with one-dimensional strings, um, infinitely small building blocks that have only the dimension of length. No height, no width, just length, okay? And further, string theory suggested that the universe is made up of multiple dimensions, okay? There are three commonly accepted theories. Um, one, that space-time has 10 dimensions. Another, that says there are 11 dimensions. And there is a third that posits that there is there are 26 dimensions, 26 dimensions, okay? I've always been fascinated by physics and math, and one of my favorite books growing up <clears throat> was Edwin Abbott's book called Flatland. Uh, he wrote it in 1884, Flatland, Edwin Abbott. Uh, the story is about a two-dimensional world whose inhabitants are geometric figures, okay? So 
Um, it's written in 1884. All right. So women are lines. Uh, men are regular polygons, right, um, with various numbers of sides, right? The number of sides is sort of like your, your social ranking. You know, the people at the top would be like circles because they have like infinite sides. And so the narrator of the story is a humble square, okay? So the narrator is visited by a creature um, he can't even comprehend, a three-dimensional sphere. Remember, this is a plane. This whole world is a plane. It's a two-dimensional world. And a three-dimensional sphere interacts with a two-dimensional world. Okay? This square cannot even comprehend what he's seeing. Right? So when, if you think about it, sphere first interacts with the plane. All the square sees is a point. Point becomes a circle, an expanding circle, a diminishing circle, point, and then gone again. Right? Blows his mind. All right, so the sphere visits Flatland um, at the turn of each millennium to introduce a new apostle to the idea of a third dimension in the hopes that eventually um, they can educate the population of Flatland to the existence of this spaceland, a third dimension, right? So after the square's mind is open to the idea of new dimensions, he then tries to convince the sphere um, of the theoretical possibility of even further dimensions. Okay? Ironically, the sphere can't, can't even wrap his mind around that possibility, and so he returns the square back to his, his home in Flatland. The square tries to tell others of this third dimension, Spaceland, but he finds it difficult to convince anyone that it exists. Um, eventually, the square is thrown in jail. Uh, and then he spends the rest of his life trying to explain this third dimension to his brother. That's Flatland. So I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that the sum total of human knowledge compared to the knowledge of who God is is about like comparing a drop of water to all the oceans of the world. Of course, God can seem incoherent, right? Three trillion years from now in heaven, we will be learning new things about God. He'll be creating new things. We don't even think about that. We sort of think of like the world now is the world in heaven just without pain and suffering and stuff, but he's a creating God. It is the very nature of who he is. He will still be creating. It's fascinating, fascinating. So another argument posited by uh, atheists is regarding the history of violence uh, caused by religion, okay? Most people are aware of the darker uh, moments of our history. Um, there's the Crusades, there's the Spanish Inquisition, the Salem Witch Trials, slavery, right? There was a time in this country where scripture was used to justify slavery. Uh, there's killings between the Protestants and the Catholics, uh, the Catholics and the Baptists uh, persecuting and killing the Anabaptists, lots of violence, right? Well, while Christendom has had its darker moments uh, throughout history, I would argue that it has been a tremendous uh, force for good in the world. So consider the issue of health care. Prior to Christianity, uh, the Greeks and the Romans 
uh, really had no, little or no interest in the poor, the sick, and the dying. Um, but it was the Christians who, institu- who, uh, who began to institutionalize health care and began building hospitals. Uh, the first hospital was built by St. Basil in Caesarea in 369. Um, by the Middle Ages, hospitals covered all over Europe and beyond. Care for the mentally ill was also a Christian initiative, right? as, as was the profession of nursing and the formation of the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. Also, the concept of public education first came from the Protestant reformers. Um, the rise of the modern university is largely a result of Christian educators. Then there, of course, the many, many achievements in, uh, of, uh, of Christians in art and literature and music, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Rembrandt, Bach, Handel, Brahms, and so on and so forth. Um, and I would argue that the most important benefit of Christianity throughout history uh, would be the millions of lives that were transformed because of an encounter with the risen Jesus. Right? Changed lives that resulted in changed families, they resulted in changed neighborhoods and changed societies. We Christians have uh, historically made a lot of mistakes, but we've also achieved a lot of great things, right? All because of the one whom we follow. So one of the strongest arguments a person can make for following Christ is the testimony of those who've chosen to follow him, right? First, uh, there are all the people throughout the last 2,000 years who chose martyrdom over forsaking Jesus, right? I read an article uh, just this week. It puts the total at 70 million people martyred since Jesus walked the earth, 70 million. But another strong argument um, are those particularly well-educated atheists um, who carefully considered the evidence for God and ended up believing in him and following him. So I want to mention four. Uh, the first is C.S. Lewis. You may have heard of him. I've quoted him several times. Um, he was raised in a church-going family in the Church of Ireland. Um, but at the age of 15, he became an atheist. This is in, maybe encouraging for you. might have a teenager who's wrestling with, with his faith. But at 15, C.S. Lewis became an atheist. Okay. He separated from Christianity uh, when he started to view his religion as just like a chore or a duty. Um, but it was the writings of George MacDonald, G.K. Chesterton, um, and the influence of his friend and colleague at Oxford, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, um, who eventually caused him to turn from atheism. Um, he fought hard up to the moment of his conversion. Um, He said he was brought into Christianity uh, like a prodigal, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. So, of course, we know Lewis came to faith in Christ. He went on to become one of the best Christian writers and one of the uh, uh, most famous apologists, defenders of the the faith. Next on the list uh, is Anthony Flew. Uh, 
he was an extremely strong advocate for atheism. Okay? He was one of the most published, uh, most renowned atheists of the past half century before his death in 2010, Anthony Flew. Um, his papers, his books, his lectures formed the foundation uh, for unbelief for atheists all around the world. But in 2004, six years before he passed, um, Flew admitted that he had made the conversion to deism, not Christianity per se, but definitely believing in some kind of intelligent design um, implying an intelligent creator. Here's what he said. He said, it has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of evolution of that first reproducing organism. So in another interview uh, from that same year, 2004, Flew said, uh, biologist studies of DNA have shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. And then in 2007, <laughs> he wrote a book uh, with the title, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. So that's Anthony Flew. Third on the list is Nicky Gumbel. Nicky Gumbel. So he was an ordained Anglican priest, a vicar, and an author. Um, he's probably most famous as, as the developer of the Alpha Course, uh, which we will be launching here this spring, the Alpha Course. Um, but Gumbel, Nicky Gumbel, wasn't always a follower of Jesus. Um, he started out as a very vocal, strong atheist. Um, he was studying law at Cambridge um, when his close friend told him that he and his wife had become Christians. Um, and so in an attempt to convert them back, um, he picked up a Bible that night at 11 o'clock and he started reading it. He's just looking for like ways to argue them back <laughs> out of their belief. Um, he read Matthew, he read Mark, Luke, and John that night. He kept reading uh, the next day and the following, and you know how it ends. Um, of course, in the process of all that reading of the New Testament, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, that is the power of the Word of God. So after graduating, uh, he practiced law for six years. Then he went back to school, uh, this time to Oxford, to study theology, and eventually became an Anglican priest, a vicar, and he went on to create the Alpha Course, which is literally done all over the world. Fourth on the list, uh, you may have heard of this person, prolific author, Christian author, Lee Strobel, um, who received a journalism degree from the University of Missouri. Uh, he then went on for a law degree at Yale uh, and became a journalist for the Chicago Tribune um, and other newspapers for about 14 years. This is what he said. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's a really good one. It says, I was an atheist for most of my life. I thought that the idea of an all-powerful, all-loving God was just silly. I learned in school that evolution was where life came from. So what do you need God for? How did I become a Christian? My wife's conversion to Christianity, which deeply troubled me at first, resulted in a lot of positive changes in her attitudes and behavior which I found winsome and intriguing. She invited me to a church 
where I heard the gospel explained in a way I could understand it. While I didn't believe it, I realized that if it were true, it would have big implications for my life. So I decided to use my journalism experience and legal expertise to investigate whether there was any credibility to Christianity or any other faith system. For nearly two years, I investigated science, philosophy, and history. I read literature, both pro and con, quizzed experts, and studied archaeology. On November 8, 1981, alone in my room, I took a yellow legal pad and began summarizing the evidence I had encountered. In light of the scientific evidence that points toward a creator and the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, I came to the conclusion that it would have required more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Essentially, I realized that to stay an atheist, I would have to believe that nothing produces everything, non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. Those leaps of faith were simply too big for me to take especially in light of the affirmative case for God's existence and Jesus' resurrection and hence his divinity. In other words, in my assessment, the Christian worldview accounted for the totality of the evidence much better than the atheistic worldview. Cool. So most of you, I'm assuming, uh, are not atheists. Maybe you are. Um, but I'm sure... If you're not an atheist, um, some of you may know an atheist. Um, and I'm assuming you probably would like to know how to interact with them. And so uh, I want to wrap this up with uh, some tips on how we can love on our atheist friends. Okay? I have five suggestions. Uh, one, love them enough to keep praying for their salvation. Okay, that's the best and most powerful thing that we can do uh, is to commit to pray for them daily, especially for their salvation, okay? Number two, embrace humility. Okay, we're all saved by the grace of God, right? Not through anything that we did to earn it. That is a key fundamental to our Christian faith. So the last thing we wanna do uh, to them is to view them as a project, okay? Uh, we want to just humbly show them the love of Christ, okay? Which leads to the next point. Listen to them, okay? One of the most loving things that we can do for another person is to just listen to them, right? Give, give the gift of your presence and listen to them. Number four, offer them grace, Offer them grace. In other words, don't, uh, don't judge them. Love on them, right? You never know. You may, they may have had um, a strict religious upbringing or a bad experience in the church or any number of things that might have happened that pushed them away from God. We want to be sensitive to that. Okay? Sometimes the atheist that is in front of us uh, was someone who was deeply hurt by Christ's followers. Finally, uh, number five, 
Commit to learning and growing in Christ. First okay? Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So our spring semester will be uh, starting the week of February 20th. Um, if you're committed to learning and growing in Christ, I would strongly recommend you sign up for a discipleship class. Um, like I said, we're launching Alpha this spring. That's a great one to sign up for. We're launching Life Church 201 this spring. That's another one you can sign up for. If you haven't taken 101, Life Church 101, you can sign up for that. Or you can sign up for any other class or small group. Or better yet, uh, sign up to lead a small group or class. Um, anyone who has taught a class or anyone who has led a small group will tell you that the leader is the one who grows the most, right? Um, I sent out an email a few days ago uh, with a link to sign up to lead a small group or class. If you didn't get that and you want that, send me an email and I'll be happy to forward that to you. We want to commit to learning and growing in Christ and not let our knowledge cause us to become prideful. Okay, 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Okay? We want to be the kind of people uh, that draws people to Christ, not the kind of people that repels them. And how can we do that? Um, it is what the Apostle Paul referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. You've heard those. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? These things draw people to Christ. And then St. Francis once said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Right? And one more thing. Remember this. Uh, in my experience, no one ever came to Christ because they lost the argument. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that even though your ways are infinitely higher than our ways, that you still love us. You're not a God who just stands by, but you're a God who enters into our suffering. You're a God who is drawing people who are far away from you to yourself. Lord, we lift up those friends and those relatives and people we know at work and our neighbors um, who don't know you. They're not following you. Lord, draw them into saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be humble, to be loving, to extend grace. And in the words of St. Francis, to preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Lord, maybe be a people um, that have the sweet aroma of Christ on us, so that others are drawn to the beauty of your gospel of grace. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.